and uh, we'll be looking to complete our notes tonight and uh, be done with the uh, semester. Uh, this will be the last last one next semester. We're just talking to uh, your pastor today will be ecclesiology. It will be meeting on Thursdays, I believe, starting January 21st. Uh, so uh, that's something that you're interested in. Uh, why that's something you can put on your calendar. So it will be Thursdays again. Uh, so there'll be one on there'll be one class on Wednesday and one on Thursday. So you can take both if you're of a mind. Okay. We'll go ahead and get started with prayer and then we'll, we'll dive right in here tonight. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us and thank you that your grace has found us and that uh, your grace keeps us as well. And Lord, as we talk about these things tonight, Lord, help us to be mindful that these are not just words on a page, but truths uh, that bind us together and uh, bind us to you. And Lord, we ask that we would be comforted, uh, strengthened, and encouraged by this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we are looking tonight at uh, the doctrine of perseverance. It's the flip side of preservation. We suggested that uh, we wanted to think about these two doctrines as the same idea looked at from two different perspectives. Preservation is God keeping us, and perseverance is our participation in that. He keeps us through our faith. Okay, so now let's see if we can't uh, define what it is and uh, put parameters on it. I think sometimes people have a little bit of a a fear of perseverance because, uh, uh, you know, fears at both ends. One, that they have to be perfect. Two, that if they don't persevere perfectly, that, uh, perhaps they'll lose their salvation or, or, or whatever the case may be. I want to, want to, want to settle some things here so that we don't have misunderstandings about it. And then, uh, hopefully get some real confidence from it as well. So let's define it first and, uh, start negatively and uh, make sure we don't think the wrong thing when we're talking about perseverance. First, I say here, perseverance does not mean that sanctification is automatic. Remember, we use this axiom here when we were talking about sanctification, uh, that sanctification is inevitable, but not automatic. That is, you will grow, but you have to feed yourself in order to grow, just like a child uh, in order to grow. Uh, will grow inevitably, but that doesn't mean you don't have to feed the child. Uh, um, and so the, the same thing is true in the Christian life. Uh, you will grow, uh, but there is it, you, you, you should have a voracious appetite and you uh, will eat uh, such that you will grow. Uh, but perseverance requires then effort, self-examination, active faithfulness, obedience, uh, immersion in the word. Uh, and so all of these things are necessary to perseverance and it will happen. Uh, and uh, it's inevitable that it will. Secondly, I say here, perseverance does not mean that the believer can never sin or that he cannot even sin grievously. I think perhaps David. Uh, David uh, committed murder and adultery all in one fell swoop. And uh, he uh, apparently kept that thing a secret, that sin a secret for as many as nine months because it's not until the baby's on the cusp of being born uh, that, uh, that uh, Nathan... Uh, confronts him and there's a, and, and, and he finally repents. So for nine months, uh, he was living with this sin unconfessed apparently. And yet he's still regarded as a man after God's heart. So it does not mean that a person who is, who is, uh, who is a believer cannot sin or even that he cannot sin grievously. It does mean 
uh, in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that a true believer can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. Uh, and, uh, and so, so, you know, in the face that, that, and that's what makes, made David different than his predecessor, Saul, right? Because Saul was confronted multiple times, and what did he do every time? Excuses, uh, uh, tried to defend himself, and he never was one who was able to repent. And because of that, he loses the kingdom. Okay, so, uh, so here's a, here's a guy who does not persevere and, and even in the face of confrontation refuses to, uh, to, uh, to repent. And so therefore our conclusion, uh, I think for, for Saul is he very likely was not a believer in the first place. David on the other hand proves that he was, Be- even though he sins in ways that perhaps exceeded what Saul did, he always repented, and so he and so he he was restored, and so he can be described as having persevered. Perseverance does not mean even that a believer cannot die with sin, or as a result of unconfessed sin. Again, I told you about how I went to uh, Saipan, taught a number of Chinese folks, and a lot of these. I'm not sure where their theology was coming from, but a lot of your evangelical Chinese had this idea that if you sinned and you didn't get a chance to confess your sin before you died, your, 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 your final destination is in jeopardy. And that's, in, that's incorrect. Uh, you can die, uh, with an unconfessed sin and that does not, for that reason, bar you from heaven. Okay. It does mean that a true believer cannot intentionally deny the essential doctrines of the faith or develop a pattern of life totally out of keeping with the faith in which he refuses to repent and confess his sins before God. Fourthly here, perseverance does not mean that people claiming to believers cannot apostatize. Okay, and we find examples throughout the New Testament. John talks about people who went out from us because they weren't of us. Okay, and so that's the, uh, and that's the, the commentary, right? They went out from us. So if someone apostatizes, leaves the faith, abandons the faith, abandons the church, uh, goes off into egregious sin and is, uh, which is unconfessed over a period of, over a long period of time, the conclusion then is not that they lost their salvation, but that they went out from us because they never were of us, even though they may have claimed to be one of us at some point. So people claiming to be believers can, in fact, apostatize. And then fifthly here, perseverance does not mean that believers must, by their own efforts alone, do the work necessary to keep themselves safe. And that's, I think, sometimes the the idea that sometimes comes this idea of our participation in our own sanctification and our perseverance sometimes sets wrong with certain people. Sounds like, okay, it's salvation by works. Well, no. God preserves us in the faith through our works, uh, but it's not our works that is saving us. Okay, so it's God's grace working through the faith and life of the believer that causes him to persevere. So positively then speaking, having sort of set aside some of the uh, misunderstandings of perseverance. Perseverance means that all true believers will and must continue in the faith, sound doctrine, and good works, such that they can neither totally nor finally fall away from 
their state of grace. And that's what perseverance is. And the, uh, the, the basis for this in the scriptures is quite robust. Not a lot of direct statements here, some of which we've sort of dabbled with already. Uh, but let's, uh, let's, uh, put them out here in front of us. Philippians 1, 6. He, that's God, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay. And so this, this perfecting work of God is accomplished and it's called a good work. It's a, it's a, it's a work in progress, as it were. We're participating in this. First Peter 1 5, you are protected by the power of God through faith. Again, so our participation here is, is, is part and parcel with the protection. God protects us. He preserves us by causing us to persevere in faith. Okay. So we are protected through faith. Again, that's not to say that we somehow on our eye, on our own conjure up this faith. It's part and parcel of the new man, but it is something that we need to participate in. We are new men. We are the spirit man, but we, it's, it's not as though we are somehow passive. We are active participants in the, in the life of God. Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that you do not come short of the grace of God. Okay. So again, this, this, this uh, exhortation here to pursue perseverance actively uh, because if you don't, you won't see the Lord. And again, the point here is not that if you don't persevere, you'll lose your salvation. But if you don't persevere, that that's an indication here. It's a clue. It's an alarm, a red flag, if you will, if you will, to let you know that in fact, uh, there, there's, there's something wrong, something terribly wrong that you need to remedy it. We also have a number of statements here, uh, in scripture that failure to persevere reveals false faith. Okay. Matthew 24, the love of many shall become cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So endurance to the end is, uh, is, 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 is necessary. So someone who falls away and, and, and we, of course, we are familiar with the, 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 the parable of the soils, these, uh, these people who, you know, for a, for a short time seem to be quite interested, curious about the things of God, but it, it becomes cold over, over the course of time. And, and there's a realization there that without the bearing of fruit, uh, you have false faith. John 8, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. The implication here, if you don't continue in my word, then you're not a disciple of mine. John 15 has a whole, it's a, it's a whole metaphor here of the, the vine, the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But if anyone doesn't abide in me, if you're, if you're not connected to the vine, if you're not a true believer, connected to Jesus Christ, then he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather him, cast them in the fire, and they're burned. So if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Okay, so it's an organic relationship that we have with Christ. And if uh, we dry up, it, it's an evidence here that we were never connected with Christ. We might have perhaps looked at the part for a while, but uh, as you know, we're, we're a branch that sort of, you know, it's, it's in, it's in the bush, but it's not connected. Eventually it dries up, gets all brittle. 
and you pull it out and you burn it. 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body, Paul says, make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself might not be disqualified. So again, here's this realization, even among with, with, the, with the great apostle, you know, great apostle Paul, uh, realizes that he needs to participate in his own sanctification, in his own perseverance, because if he doesn't, he will discover himself to be disqualified in the last day. First Peter, first Corinthians 15, you are, you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay. And, and the idea here, believed emptily. So you, you, it was a vacuous expression of faith is the, is the idea, believing in vain. Philippians 2, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So not work for your salvation, but work it out. Express it. Manifest the fact that you are a believer in Christ and prove yourself to be children of God, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I didn't run in vain or toil in vain. Colossians 1. He has now, God has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Again, it's not, it's not to say that you don't sometimes slip and stumble, uh, even have doubts here, but if you move away from the hope and say, you know, I, I no longer believe this. And I, 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 I just don't believe in this heaven thing. Jesus coming. I just don't. Well, there, there is, there's no hope here at that point. You've apostatized. Second Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we'll reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. Hebrews 3, we're Christ's house. If we hold fast our confidence and our boast of our hope until the end, we have become partakers of Christ. If, we continue to reflect Christ, right? If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Then we have this passage here on, on the, uh, on the call for us to persevere in the community of faith. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what's promised. My righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are of, not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have the faith to the preserving of the soul. The context here is that of our participation in the life of the church. If we, if we forsake the assembly, which I think is another expression here of the idea of apostasy, uh, if we don't persevere in the assembly, uh, then it says here, we cast up aside our confidence, right? Uh, which is great reward. Okay. And I think we have really through the whole book of Hebrews, this this series of warnings designed to alert professing believers that a salvation experience that doesn't endure but reverts to a previous state, pagan lifestyle, is not true conversion. It's a very serious book. And uh, such a professing Christian is self-deceived. And I think it's very important um, that you don't Give assurance to someone who has done this, right? And, and you meet them. 
routinely, right? You know, oh yeah, yeah, I, I had vacation Bible school when I was in fourth grade. I, I walked that aisle. I'm good, man. I'm good. Well, n- n- no, excuse me, sir. You're not. Yeah, yeah, you're not. You, you, you need to, you need to rethink this because the book of Hebrews warns against people in your situation. And so, uh, it's, I, I, it's, it's difficult to do. It seems, it's, you know, seems judgmental perhaps. At the same time, it's the best thing that you can do uh, for someone in that situation. James 2, I mentioned this earlier, passage I was reading when I was converted. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's vacuous. Remember this vacuum, believing in vain, this vacuous faith here, being alone. Okay, this, this isolated expression of faith that isn't accompanied here uh, by works. It's not really faith is the point. First John 5, these things I've written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. How? Well, because you believe. And then First John is just filled with these tests of life. How do you know you've been born of God? Well, these will come back again when we talk about the assurance of salvation. How do you know? Well, there's a whole list of things in the book of First John. In fact, there's about almost a dozen of them, right? We know if we've been born of God, if we do righteousness, we love other believers, maintain an active church life, maintain orthodox theology, continue in our faith in Christ. And then there's oppositely warnings. We know we have not been born of God if we fail to practice the truth, if we fail to confess sins, if we sin wantonly, if we love the world, if we hate believers, and if we fail to preserve uh, orthodox theology. That's the whole theme of 1 John. It's written for that whole purpose, right? Jude 21, then, keep yourselves in the love of God. Remember, we started this section with this verse. Yeah. Keep yourself in the love of God. And then a couple of verses later, the one who is able to keep you will do so. So, so again, this, this is a mutual effort. God will keep you as you keep yourself by means of faith. Okay. Again, the point here is not that one can lose one's salvation if you fail to keep yourself in the love of God, but if, that if you make no effort uh, to persevere, then Salvation was absent in the first place. Okay? Questions up till this point? Uh, yes. I have uh, one up at the top of page 53. Okay. Hebrews 10, uh, 36 and 39. Right. Uh, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he drinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Can you give a working definition of shrinking back? Yeah, I, I, to me, that's that's a that's code for a, what we would use apostasy for. It's not just that you would have a momentary lapse or a momentary doubt or or sin once. The point here is to, the, the the shrinking back in, in the whole context of Hebrews is is turning your back. In fact, it's right right there. It's right there in that same context uh, where uh, where the author of Hebrews tells us, "Don't forsake the assembly." And so that I, I think that would sort of be an example here of what shrinking back might look like, abandoning the assembly. And, and again, sometimes pastors will use that to, you know, compel people to come to church week by week. I, I don't think that's the point. The point is, if you walk away from the church, 
entirely and it, not join another, uh, but just say, you know, I'm, I'm done with church. I'm just going to sit at home from now on on, on Sundays. The, the, the alarm bell should be ringing because you've shrunk back. You've so it's not, so it's not being in a test that God gives and we come to the edge of the Red Sea and, or like Ephraim, armed for battle, but turned back and, you know, and, uh, that doesn't, I mean, because there have been at times in my life when I know that, that I was at a thing of where clearly there was a path of obedience, a path of disobedience and I chickened out. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, don't, I don't think that's the point. That when, yeah, with the shrinking back is not that you know I, I hesitate to do what's right. I, I don't. I, I think the shrinking back's more than that. You know, I think everybody's go goes through that that kind of a situation where we hesitate before we do what's right, or even don't do what's right because you know we have that internal tug of war and we lose, right? So I don't. I, I think it's a it's a much stronger idea here. To shrink back is to fall back is to apostatize. I, I think it's a stronger idea here. Though. Okay. It is interesting, though, in that, that you say that this is this is a verse, one of several verses, that was used in the early church. I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of the lapsed. Um, uh, yeah. it, there's, in, in the early church, of course, they were facing enormous persecution. And uh, they did actually have those situations that we sometimes talk about. You know, they... Hold the gun up to your head. Do you, do you, do you deny that Jesus, do you affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord? And in a, in a moment of weakness, sometimes Christians would, would deny their Lord. Like Peter did, right? And then, and then afterward, regret that they had. You know, they, they saved their life by, by doing this. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of question in the early church. What should we do with it? They were called the lapsed. They, they lapsed in their faith. Should they be brought back into the church or should they be, should they be abandoned? Uh, because they denied their Lord. And for the most part, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the church recognized that sometimes in a moment of weakness, you can lie about your faith and, and it not be thought of as apostatizing. Okay. Uh, but if you persist in that or do this over and again, it, you would perhaps, you know, draw draw some doubt. Okay. Sharon, you had a question? No, you answered it. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so in what do you have to persevere here? Uh, let me see here. You've got to persevere firstly in personal faith. First John 5, whoever believes, and this term is in the present tense, which implies continuous action. If a person continues to believe that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Okay, And so, again, we're going to see under assurance, our assurance of, of salvation, our perseverance is not... Uh, a, a backward look to a moment or in time when we believed. Although, I mean, there is a point at which we first believed. There's no doubt about that. But, but our, our assurance is tied not to the fact that we did something in the past, but we continue to do it. So whoever believes persists in their faith. 
that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So you have to persevere in personal faith, which means that a true believer will never apostatize or lose his faith and trust in God for salvation through Christ. A lack of perseverance shows lack of life. So continuance then is the evidence of reality. And there's a little paragraph there on the lapsed, right? Second thing is we have to persevere in sound doctrine. Of course, the question that, that again, that comes up is, well, how thoroughly do we have to do that? And that was the first question. How, th- how absolutely must we persist in faith? Can we have a moment of doubt? Can we deny our Lord in a moment of weakness and then repent of it? And there, again, we, we recognize that there is, this is not an absolute perfection. Uh, and the same thing here is in terms of sound doctrine. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You are saved if you hold fast the word, which I preach to you. He is now reconciled. If you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So again here, there are two terms here. It's expansive, a little more expansive than the previous here. You have to hold firm to the gospel. Okay, this is, this is one element of sound doctrine that's non-negotiable. I have to believe in the fundamental truths of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried, rose again the third day according to the scripture. Those things you have to persist in. And then it says here, in the faith. And it's interesting when you see that word faith or the faith or the tradition, uh, what we have here is, if I, if I, if I can put it, a, a core of fundamental truths. Uh, there were, there were creeds that were recited in the early church. We, we know this was a, a very early impulse in the church. Uh, and uh, we're, we're familiar with some of them, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, but it seems like that was an, an impulse very early on to create these creeds of core doctrine that you just, you cannot deny these things, okay? Of course, we're, we're all going to have, you know, differences with one another and incidentals of theology here, and, you know, we'll, we'll quibble about some things, and sometimes I'll even say the class here, you know, if you if you don't agree with me at this point, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. This is something I hold loosely, right? But some things, we they're non-negotiable, okay? And I think that's what we're talking about. The non-negotiables, the, the centerpiece of the Christian theology, the gospel, the kerygma, as it's sometimes called. You've got to persist in this. You, you can't walk away from that. And so, again, the question we might ask is, how much doctrine can you be wrong on and still be a Christian? Because we're all wrong on some things, right? In response, it should be noted that a believer may be in error due to limited understanding, lack of teaching, and just may be confused. However, he will never deny clear teachings of Scripture once exposed to them and will not repudiate the central message of the gospel. I think that's what it means here to persevere. You're going to accept the clear teachings of Scripture, once exposed to them, and won't ever repudiate the central message of the Christian gospel. Uh, if you do those things, I think that would be a, 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 an exercise of non-perseverance. Okay? And then perseverance in good works. And, and we're going to have the same 
it's the same record play here because of the same kinds of questions that come out. But let's establish first that we need to persist in good works. And then we ask the question, well, how many good works? How much do we have to do in order to be considered persevering believers? Well, let's look at the text first. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now more also in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling so that you will prove yourselves to be the sons of God. Okay, How am I going to prove that I'm a believer? I've got to work out my salvation. Okay, James 2, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So there's got to be some evidence here in the life of the believer uh, to corroborate the fact that it was a valid faith. Okay, Of course, uh, 1 John is filled with these tests of faith. But again, this question comes up. Well, how, how much do we, I mean, how much disobedience can there be? How many good things do we have to do in order to qualify as persevering? Well, um, the, the answer is not quantifiable. First John clearly teaches that believers do sin. In fact, first John one goes to, so far as to say, if you think you don't, then you've deceived yourself. You need to confess your sin. And he will forgive you, right? It also teaches, though, that continuance in sustained, willful, unconfessed sin for which God fails to chasten the believer, it is, is impossible for the believer. Okay, so if a true believer engages in sin, that, that's not proof that he is, he is apostatized. If he persists in that, in the face of confrontation and Evidence is no internal struggle. Okay. He, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to be facing the chastening hand of God. Then that's, then that's, that's the, uh, that's the concern, uh, that, uh, John seems to have. Okay. God will invariably chasten his children, right? That's, you know, we, we see that. That's, if, if he doesn't chasten us, something's wrong. You know, we, we, we know that, uh, uh, that, that this discussion here, do you, do you, what, why do, why do parents chasten their children? Because they love them. If a parent doesn't chasten his children, what does that demonstrate? Well, it either demonstrates he doesn't love them or maybe it's not their children, right? Maybe it's some other kid. And I don't, I don't chase other kids usually, you know, so, <laughs> so, uh, and, and so if you are a parent and you are a loving parent, you will chasten your children. God's a good parent, spiritually speaking, right? Uh, he's our, he's our spiritual father. We are his spiritual children and he chastens us. And if there is no chastening hand of God, uh, then this is, this is, this is, this is a troubling scenario. Okay. This chastening is a mark of true perseverance. <laughs> It's virtually impossible, however, to reach a definite verdict whether someone is regenerate or unregenerate based on this factor alone, even in oneself. Remember when David, you know, confessed his sins at the end of chapter 51, he says, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me. Because what? He, he's, he is so self-deceived and he knows it that, that he can't even measure his own faith, his own 
perseverance. And so he appeals to God ultimately uh, to uh, to to preserve him in the faith. Okay, but but here's the thing: if you're in this situation wondering whether you know the the amount of sin that's in your life is okay, you're 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 thinking wrong, right? A true believer is going to be not going to allow himself to live so close to this precipice of uncertainty. Uh, and and so so that's the guiding thought that we should have in in this idea. Any questions here on perseverance? Yes, Sharon. I'm not hearing you. You're you're muted, Sharon. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. You can have a person that is a not a believer uh-huh. and they think they are and they keep doing this stuff. But they True. still think they're a believer. True. Uh, yeah, just just because one be, uh, acts like a Christian is not proof of itself that one is a believer. In fact, we're going to talk about that here with assurance, uh, because it, it, assurance comes in a montage of, of of factors. It's it's not just works. It's works that the Holy Spirit has wrought in the life, and it's not just that you. You know, give the right answers. It's, it's belief. And we're actually going to see under the assurance that there's some things you can't fake. And that's, and that, that's, you know, so I'll, 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 that with that teaser, let's move to assurance and, and perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll get a, a better sense perhaps of, of the answer here. If I, if I get to the end of this section and I still haven't answered your question, bring it back up again because I, I think we're about, to, we're about to touch this topic here. Okay. So assurance, assurance and security are not the same thing. Okay. Security is the objective fact that if God saves you, he saves you permanently. Assurance is my confidence that I am one of those people that God has saved. Okay. So it is possible to be secure and lack assurance. Okay. So they're not the same thing. Uh, assurance is a subjective phenomenon. It's, it's a question. How do I know something about me? I'm, you know, I'm the subject, right? So how do I know I am one of these people? Where security is an objective statement. If a person is saved, he is permanently saved. And so this is answering slightly different question. The question is, how do I know I'm one of those people? Okay. So what's the ground of assurance? Well, I, I think everybody would have to agree that the ground of assurance are these promises of eternal security, right? God promises to preserve and keep us eternally secure. If those promises were not there, I don't think we could have a discussion about assurance. But the means of assurance are not the promises. The promises are just words on the page, right? The devils, the, the demons believe these things and they tremble. So it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work assurance in their hearts, right? So they know these facts, but it doesn't give them assurance. So just knowing the fact of, of eternal security does not give me assurance that I'm one of those people. So, but the ground of assurance is very important. Those promises lay the foundation. If the promises weren't there. We couldn't even have this discussion. Okay. So how do I know that I am a believer? Well, again, we're, we're sort of backing up and talking about pers- perseverance again. 
I know that I'm a believer because I persevere. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, again, we're, we're sort of working through the same material all over again. Uh, but this is what the Bible says plainly is our, one of our primary means of assurance. And the Bible comes back to this over and over and over and over and over and over again. This is the way we know. Okay. Truly I, truly I say unto you, he who hears my words and believes, again, persists in believing, him who sent me has eternal life, will not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Okay? If I believe, if I continue to believe in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.23, he's reconciled you. If you continue to believe firmly, established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. First John 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the, the, the sin bearer here, is born of God and concludes here, these things I have written to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. So again, the, 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 the certainty of eternal life is wrapped up in the believing on the name of the Son of God. Again, this name of the Son of God is, is not something magic about Jesus, right? The, you know, the name Jesus. But rather that you believe in what he has done and all he stands for. Again, these passages are not concerned with whether one has believed in the past, but whether one persists in his faith. Recognizes the possibility that there are people out there who make a profession of faith that is proved false by a failure to continue. Okay, or bear fruit. I'm going to skip that next paragraph just for sake of time here. Secondly, we have to persevere in good works. Okay, and again, we're uh, this stands as the overwhelmingly dominant means in Scripture whereby one examines himself to discover whether he's in the faith. And we ha- we're told this multiple times: examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. How do I do that, Peter? says that in 2 Peter 1, 3. Well, he gives us an answer. Add to your faith with all diligence, moral excellence, moral knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Okay, so add these things and you will discover yourself to be in the faith because here's the, here's the, here's the, uh, Here's the explanation. Because if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so you're progressing in your sanctification, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from former sins. And those are actually rather strong terms, this term blind, uh, I, I, I realize the short-sighted is there. Actually, it's myopic. So if you have myopia, you know, nearsightedness. Uh, so, but, but the qualifying term here is blind. So nearsighted to the point of blindness. Um, and, uh, in scripture, the term blind has two meanings. One, spiritual blindness or spiritual death or physical blindness. You cannot see. So, uh, so it's a very strong term. Again, this idea of forgetting your purification. Probably has a stronger term. It's not just, oh, you know, a mental lapse. I forgot. Uh, but, but more, it's an, it's an abandonment. You know, you know, you sometimes would say about a, a child who walks away from his family. He abandoned his roots. He forgot his roots. 
So that's the idea here of this idea of forgetting your purification. He abandoned it. He abandoned his family. Because if you lack these things, uh, you, you, uh, you're, you're short-sighted. But then he concludes here, brethren, be all the diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Well, how do I know? How, how, how can I know? How can I be certain? As long as you practice these things, you'll have certainty. Okay. And so the, so the, the answer is a very, very strong. Yeah, how, how do I know whether I'm a Christian or not? Well, you have faith, you have virtue, knowledge here, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. If these things are in you and abound, then you have confidence. Then you have assurance. And then we, we, we mentioned before, first John is just filled with uh, passages here. That tell us, how do we know that we've been born of God? Okay. This is how we know. Well, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, then we lie. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and we have confidence that Jesus' blood has cleansed us from our sins. And then there's this series of, of, uh, of passages. How do you know you are born of God? Okay. By this you know that you have come to know him if you keep his commandments. You're trying to toe the line. doesn't mean you're doing it perfectly, but you recognize that there's a law of God and you're trying to keep it because he tells you to. You're obeying. Second, uh, First John 2.11, if you say you're in the light and hate your brother, you're in the darkness. But if you love your brothers, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, you come to church and you see those folks around you and you have a genuine affection and concern for them, Okay, this this again becomes a, a proof. And here I'm starting on to your on to your answer here of your question here, Sharon, uh, because that's something you can't fake. Uh, you, you walk into church, and if you can't stand the people around you, even if you fake it, you know, you know whether in fact uh, you're you're being genuine or not. Okay, and this is going to come back again, but I think, again, a start to your qu- answer to the question. You hate your brother. You walk in darkness. First uh, John 2, 5, 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So again, we can sort of turn this oppositely. If you hate the world or trying to eschew it, not be worldly, the love of your Father is in you. Uh, First John 2, 28 and 29, abide in him so that when he appears, we can have confidence and shrink not away from in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. How do I know whether I'm born of God? Well, I practice righteousness. You know, I, 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 not perfectly again, but, I, but, I, but I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to advance in Christ-likeness. First John 3, no one who is born of God practices sin. That is continues unabated in unconfessed and unchastened sin. A believer can't do that because he's born of God. And so this is how you distinguish a child of God from the child of the devil. First John 3.14, we know that we've passed from death into life because we love each other. And if you don't, you abide in death. Keeps going. First John, John is just filled with these. Let us love, not with word or tongue, but deed and truth. We know that we are in the truth. And we assure our hearts before him when we love each other 
in deed and in truth. One who keeps his commandments abides in him. And we know by this that we're Christians. First John 4, those who love, uh, one who does not love does not go, love God, know God because God is love. Okay, so caveats. Okay, here's, 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 again, coming back to your question here, Sharon. Good works of themselves are not proof of salvation by themselves. In fact, Matthew describes works that, you know, you know, that there's, you come to the, the last judgment and say, you know, haven't I done this and that and the other thing? And what does Jesus say? You know, sorry. I never knew you. Depart from me. You did a lot of things, but that doesn't prove that you're a believer. So I say here, perseverance needs to be coupled with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, our third point, for a complete realization of assurance. Okay. And secondly, since no Christian is perfectly consistent in maintaining good works, it is neither surprising nor unhealthy for a Christian to occasionally lack assurance. That, that, that's not a bad thing. I, I think that's built into the system. When we engage in sin, uh, there's something inside us, this alarm clock that goes off and, and we should have, have this, 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 these doubts that persist. That's, that's part of the, that's part of the way God works here. But God ordained means to ensure Christian obedience and faithfulness. So what is this ministry of the Spirit that I've spoken about? In fact, maybe open your Bible to, uh, Romans chapter 8, because I think it, uh, I'm going to spill into some of the surrounding verses here as we talk about this tonight. Okay, it says here in Romans 8, those who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Here's the line. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirits, that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. Okay? And so there's this, this statement here, the, the Holy Spirit here, in some sense, testifies with our spirits, we are children of God. Now there's, there's something of a mystical, uh, interpretation of this that I want to sort of steer us away from. There, there, are, there are those who would say, okay, what this means is the Holy Spirit sort of whispers in your ear, you're a believer. And, and so you have this special revelation from God, uh, to, uh, the, you know, God sort of gives you this mystical good feeling, uh, that you're a child of God. And, and what I want to do is say, I'm, I, that's not what's being taught here. In fact, the context gives us a very clear explanation of what is meant by the Holy Spirit testifying with our spirits. And the idea here, it's not, he's not, he's not witnessing to us. He's witnessing with us. That is, he is producing something in us that causes us to have this confidence. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. What does he do? Well, you can, you can see some of the things here. You're led by the Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, again, it's not a mystical leading. You're, you're, obe- you're, you're, you're acting in obedience. To be led by the Spirit is to be keeping in step with what God tells you to do in obedience to the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. 
Here's a, here's another one here. This it's you have not received a spirit of slavery that leads to fear, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, "Abba, Father." Okay. So what what does that what does that mean? Well, we have a resident Holy Spirit who, when something goes terribly wrong, and you know you're 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 given terrible news, uh, you know you know perhaps it's a it's it's a medical thing, or perhaps someone's died, or and 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 there's there's what used to well up in you as dread, terrible fear, is replaced instead by a spontaneous crying out to God, God help me, Abba Father. Okay, again, and so here back to your your question, Sharon. How do we know that we're being honest? Well, this is something you can't fake. You know, you're, you're told, hey, you've got cancer and you've got a year to live. You can't fake your response at that point. You, you may be able to get a hold of yourself and make a good show of things before others. But what is your gut response when that happens? If it, is, it, is it a feeling of terrible dread? Or is there in your mind this confidence that God is in control? Okay. Well, this latter response, this is the Holy Spirit testifying with our spirits, our responses to circumstances to give us confidence that we are children of God. Okay. So, so it's not just a matter of, you know, obeying the rules, but actually responding in our minds and our affections, which can't be faked. And this is what gives us then the great confidence that we are children of God. Okay. And it goes on to say, if we suffer with him, okay, you have a willingness here to suffer for him. And in fact, this is often mentioned in the early church. How do we know that the, the, the Christian faith is the, is the real thing? Well, because people were actually dying for it. Now we, you know, and, 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 and here's, here's, here's a means of assurance. You know, you really must believe it if you're willing to die for it. And so there's a there's a level of confidence there that if in fact I get to that place, and you know, pray that it never happens to any of us, but if it does, and if I am willing to die for it and I'm willing to suffer, then it's evidence that I truly must believe it. Okay? And again, so 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 Romans eight gives us a a, a snapshot here. Of the kind of responses, the affections, the inclinations and motions of the will, these are things that the Holy Spirit is producing in us and give us, I think, ultimately the greatest sense of the assurance of salvation. So I, does that, does that make sense, Sharon? Does that, does that answer the question at all? Yes. Okay. I was thinking there's a lot of people that say, well, if I think I'm saved, I must be saved. Right, right. And yeah, I think it's a little bit more complex than that, right? Okay. This leads us to our last topic here, and it's a pleasant one to finish on. That's the idea of glorification. Okay, so you know we're, we're we've slogged through the hard work of sanctification, perseverance. 
Uh, now we get to the, uh, the climax. Okay. The light at the end of the tunnel blossoms forth and we come to this idea of glorification. And again, it's a, it's a wonderful thought to, to end with. So what is glorification? Well, it's the final consummation of salvation in which the believer is freed both from the presence, uh, not, not only from the penalty of sin or the power of sin, but also from the presence of sin and receives fullness of adoption and resurrection life. And I say technically glorification occurs at the resurrection, right? Uh, because we're not completely what we are going to be until we receive our resurrection bodies. But there is, we're, we're awfully close at the point of death when we are put into the presence of God. So glorification technically does not happen until the resurrection. Uh, but there is a, there's a great foretaste of that that occurs, uh, when we pass from this life. So I say it's not precisely that blessed state into which all believers enter upon death. And this is a magnificent event and it will be worth it all when we see Jesus, right? But it can't be compared to the day when the perishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality. And death will be swallowed up in victory. Okay, that, that's, that's the moment of glorification. And it's, uh, and it's an advance even on what happens, uh, when we pass from this life into the presence of our Lord. So the emphasis here is on the restoration of the whole created order to what it is intended to be. So that's the last, uh, element here of, of the doctrine of salvation. And hopefully it's a, it's a comforting and encouraging one. And uh, any questions as we wrap things up here for the semester? Yes, in that, in that, I think some call the talked about where between death and the, and the resurrection, uh-huh. this is the intermediate state from right, intermediate. I think. But but the thing is, is the question that that I have for you, Mark, is is that when we die not when we're uh, we're freed from our dynamic nature mm-hmm. in other words, the freedom from the dynamic nature is not at the moment of death it is yes it is but there but there's more to be had at resurrection oh okay so yes we, we we're we're freed from the power of sin entirely at okay. at, at our death at the same time, we don't see everything put in order. Um, and that's what we have at the, at the resurrection. So there, there's something still, you know, Paul talks about in second Corinthians five, how that, uh, uh, he doesn't really relish the idea of becoming a naked soul, right? So when he dies, he'll be with Christ. And so he's, he's willing to go. He knows this is going to be a, a better experience than he has right now. At the same time, he's kind of attached to his body and kind of likes it and doesn't really relish the idea of this intermediate state as it's better than where he is now, but it's, it's not what it's going to be. Uh, the resurrection, the resurrected state is a better state than the intermediate state. Question. Yes. Um, let me see if I get it right. Um, okay. So what is an example of what the chasing of God might look like in some, in a believer's life? That's a good question. I, I think probably at its, at its simplest is, is a very active conscience. Okay. You know, you're 
conviction taking place. I've sinned and it grieves me. Okay. Uh, I mean, that, that can be the simplest thing, but it, it does appear that God can do things that are even more aggressive. And, and, you know, like for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, the communion passage, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, what happens? Well, for this reason, many are weak and sickly among you, and even some have died. Okay, so this is the chastening hand of God. If you if you treat that right uh, that takes place in the church, and you treat the church uh, in a in a loose and a, and a careless way, then it is possible that God would chasten you. Again, it's it's somewhat undefined, but the words are there, right? You can be weak and sick, and even brought to the point of death. Uh, so, so that would be what the chastening hand of God could look like. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if it's necessary. I mean, just just like when you're chasing your children, is there a is there a one a one size fits all? No. Uh, so it, it probably has a lot of different forms. But those are some things we see in Scripture, at least. Okay. Thank you. Okay.